0: I would invite you as we look this morning, our sermon is gonna be in Hebrews. So if you wanna take your copy of the scriptures and uh, open Hebrews chapter nine, if you don't have one, you can find a copy of the Bible in the back of the pew in front of you and it'll be on page 655. We invite you to join us there. We are going to be picking up our study in Hebrews chapter nine and way of quick introduction, this Hebrews eight through 10, we're really the entire letter, but especially these three chapters are really best studied and understood together. Um, Because it's all an explanation of Jesus as the high priest in the Old Testament replacing And it's all kind of a a common thought But that would be a, uh, thank you, a three-hour sermon to go through all that at once So necessity, we kind of break that up um, that can create some sense of repetition. So if I'm up here saying, hey, that's what Scott said last week, and that's what he said, there going to be some of that. So as we come into the sermon, I want us to be aware that that may be the case. But I also want to encourage you to come into it with fresh eyes and fresh ears and to not fall prey into that sort of, oh, I've heard this before. Because there are some additional truths here. Um, you know, the writer of Hebrews wasn't just redundant for no reason. There are new things coming. So let's come with it with new eyes. And let's look at that. Um, this section was following um, the section in chapter 7, where, we, where the writer expounded on the high priest of Melchizedek from the Old Testament. And explained how, you know, the Levitical priesthood was really inadequate. We needed someone in the order of Melchizedek. Someone who is holy, innocent, <clears throat> unstained, separated from sinners. The Levitical priest was one of the sinners. You know, in order to really um, fulfill the, the purpose in atonement, we needed someone separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And chapter 8 opens up with, by affirming that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. <clears throat> Do you remember last week, we saw um, the Old Testament picture of the tabernacle, as Scott reviewed already this morning, the high priest, only the high priest could enter that um, holy of holies, that holy place. And that veil was an indicator and a reminder to the people, you're separated from God. Don't come too close. He's utterly different than you. He's holy. You don't understand that. Keep your distance. And as long as that veil was there, that was a reminder that people had. Every time they came to worship, they reminded God was like, hold on, hold on, you're not good enough. Do your stuff. Do your stuff. Under the Old Testament, there were gifts and sacrifices that required. But ultimately, <clears throat> we see in uh, the first part of this chapter that those are just regulations, really do's and don'ts, boxes to check that really weren't efficacious. Um, they were simply the, the rituals of religion um, pointing to what we're going to see today. And uh, so we're going to read this passage together. We are going to skip verses 15 through 22 today. Lord willing, I will come back and uh, kick those verses and preach on those next week. Uh, But I would invite you to go ahead and stand at this time and uh, read these passages with me together, starting in Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these." For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world." But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Pray with me. God, we just ask you to bless this reading of your word. I ask that you would uh, speak your words through me this morning. Help us to understand these truths. Help us to give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done for us. And ultimately, to be more conformed to the image of your Son, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we see here, I think the real thrust of the passage today is that as we... The whole book of Hebrews talks about Jesus is better. Today, we see him pictured as the better sacrifice. And ultimately, I think there's two specific ways that we see him pictured as better. And the first of those is the duration. You know, the Old Testament sacrifice was temporary. Every year, you had to come back. The priest had to come back every year and offer this. But Christ's sacrifice was eternally effective Only had to be once, once for all. We see verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places. 25 and six, it wasn't to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year. He has appeared once for all to put away sin. Verse 28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, we see it was eternally effective. And not only was it just eternally, it was eternally effective. Because the Old Testament, it really didn't take away sin. You know, you sort of check the boxes to renew your right standing with God, so to speak. You know, I sort of think of it almost like the, the people when you uh, get into credit card trouble. You get a credit card, and you say, okay, well, I got a credit card, and I got stuff, and now I got a balance. I got to pay it off. I owe this money. All right? Well, you could pay it off, and it'd be done. That's one resolution. But what some people do is they don't have the money to pay it off. They can't pay it off. Therefore, well, what have I got to do? Well, get creative. Well, I owe Chase $5,000. Hey, I, I bet Wells Fargo will give me a card with $5,000 on it. So you get another credit card from $5,000, you pay the Chase one, say, boom, it's paid. Is your debt paid? No, you still owe $5,000, right? You just sort of shuffled it around. You sort of you know, made, you know, made it sort of right and put it off for another time. That bill's still going to come due, though. And that's sort of how I think about the Old Testament. You had, it was due. You know, you, we, as you know, the people of Israel at that time, you know, as mankind, we were still under the debt of sin, which is death. So as the priest would apply that blood of the animal, it was sort of a, you know, payment to sort of put it off. But the payment was still due. Does that make sense? I think we understand this, right? Jesus' sacrifice wasn't like that. It was effective, It actually paid the price of our sin. And we're gonna get into that a little bit more. But the other thing we see here is that there is an idea of a doctrine that is taught by some called transubstantiation that says when we actually take communion, we see they would say that Jesus Christ, actually his body and blood actually um, are offered. These become the physical elements, the pieces of his body, The, the blood actually takes on the properties of his blood and that he actually is offered up again every time. Now, for me, always, that never made much sense because if you think about when he proclaimed that, they take that from the Gospels and the Last Supper when he stood before his disciples and said, "'This is my body,' holding the bread." And they said, "'He said this is his body.'" And they take that literally. They don't allow for um, an uh, analogy. This is, you know, symbolically my body. They say, that actually what he said, and that's what he means. I always wondered about that growing up. I'm like, but, so if he gives, is he giving Peter his pinky toe and John his elbow? I mean, he's standing, his body is right there and whole at this point still, right? So what pieces of his body was he giving to all of them? I never understood that. Of course, that's man's wisdom, and so we don't want to rely on that, uh, but here we see God's teaching that Jesus is not offered again and again and again. So explicitly said here that he was offered once for all, he is not, as the Old Testament priests, repeatedly offered year after year or week after week or whenever you do that. So here we see a, a clear biblical teaching that transubstantiation is an error. And I just wanted to mention that because this is one of the clearest places that we do see that. But what a blessed reminder that his sacrifice, how is it better? It was eternally Effective eternally effective next we, in addition to the duration we also see the depth of the sacrifice because we look at the Old Testament again and we see there it talks about the purification of the flesh okay the outer part only physical things could purify physical things okay that's all they had f- effectiveness for if your hands get dirty you need physical water to wash them all right so You look at the Old Testament and you see the sprinkling of the blood, even at the initial thing when Moses, you know, took the ashes of the heifer and the blood and sprinkled over the um, physical elements of the altar and the uh, um, table and the tabernacle itself and then symbolically over the whole people. The little droplets of blood, they they really didn't do anything. I mean, if, if it happened to land on a, as he was sprinkling blood, if it happened to land on a passing mouse or something, that mouse is not now suddenly purified by that. It's a symbolic thing. That's all it could ever be. Um, as people would become defiled, you know, we'd look at the Old Testament, they would be, if you touched something dead, well, you were defiled in a religious sense. Um, if you had touched someone who was diseased, you would be defiled in that religious sense. Um, if you ate something that was unclean, you would be defiled in this religious sense. But it was just a religious sense. Now, there were you know, health reasons and why God passed those things, but the point is, for today's lesson, those were just physical things. That they were just regulations. As Jesus talked about in the New Testament, you're not actually made unrighteous by the things you eat. It's what comes out of you that makes you unrighteous. It's the inside. And so, as the Old Testament, again, it could not get to the conscience. It could only purify the flesh in a symbolic way which means that you were never really granted that right standing before God. In contrast to the purification of the flesh, we see the reference here in Hebrews 9 of the offering of Christ gave a clear conscience, a clean conscience. It didn't just purify our outer flesh or the elements before it. It, The blood of Christ actually cleans our conscience, the part of our soul that knows right from wrong, that knows if you're guilty or not, that knows if you're right standing and those that that conscience can only be clean when things are really made right you know it's sort of like <clears throat> if if you use a child think back or children here today you get in trouble with your parents anybody ever no you haven't Has anybody know somebody maybe a sibling who's gotten in trouble with a parent raise your hand come on kids tell you can tell on your siblings you know a sibling who's gotten in trouble right yeah um do you ever know a sibling who uh, got into trouble or anyone and they didn't get caught or they got out of it? They shifted the blame to somebody else? Is that ever? Have you ever maybe read in a movie? Oh, he's up there. Yeah, definitely. I've got a sibling who's done that before. <laughs> Boss is not ashamed. Um, let's imagine that happened to you, okay, and you did something wrong, but either you didn't get caught or you were able to get out of it you lied your way out of it. shifted the blame. Somebody forgot. Did you still feel guilty? Was your conscience still burdened by that? Absolutely. But you're off the hook. You're not in trouble. Outwardly, you're okay. Your conscience knows. Your conscience knows. That's the part of your soul that knows right from wrong. And so as these Old Testament um, Rites were administered. I think people still knew, you know, I'm still guilty, though. You know, God sees me this way, but I'm still guilty. The fact is, only the blood of Christ applied was effective to actually clean our conscience. Okay, because now we understand that one who was holy, who loved us, came and gave himself. What did that look like? You know, as the priest would enter into the holy place and he would hold that vessel containing the blood of the animal. He was offering it for, him own, for his own sin, okay, and offering for it for on behalf of the people around him. And in a symbolic way, Christ entered into the heavenly holy places. He was the vessel. He was the vessel holding his own blood of the sacrifice. He was the priest and the sacrifice coming into the presence of the most holy, offering himself. And here we see in verse 14, we see a beautiful picture of the Trinity. How much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God that is the Father. We see the Trinity at work here in, in redemption, in salvation, in the sacrifice itself. And we see them all working together for what? For what purpose? To purify our conscience. To make us holy. To fulfill all of these Old Testament regulations that were pointing, the ineffective regulations that just looked ahead to this better sacrifice, that looked ahead to this time when Jesus would fulfill those things and actually pay for our sin. And that's what we get to look back to. You know, the Israelites had to look forward to that and trust in faith and believe that somehow it was gonna happen and work. And until then, just check the boxes. We have how much better sacrifice and much better is Jesus that we can look back and know that he has paid that price already. And we can rest in that finished work. It was once for all done. It's done. There's nothing else that needs to be added to that. There's nothing else that we could add to that. So we see that... And and why is this? Because... The Old Testament things, they were just made by hands. They were temporary. They were models, as we might say. or the, the theological word is types. They were types of the heavenly, the things not seen. But Christ was effective in the heavenly things. He was the one that was represented by the Lamb. The presence of God in heaven were the things represented by these divisions and these tabernacle and the temple and the veil and all that stuff. And he entered in to take care of that. Um, don't want to steal thunder from chapter 10's uh, lesson, but we saw that when he died, that veil was ripped in two, m- m- you know, clearing the way for man to now enter into the presence of God, and that's where we find ourselves as in this age. <clears throat> if we continue to look into uh, verse <clears throat> 27... what is the application for us today? What do we see about this? These are great facts to know. Check them off. Now I know a little bit more about the Old Testament. I know a little more about Jesus. That's not what it's written for. That's not what it's written for. Verse 27 and 28, we have a a stern reminder that it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. This is the nature of man. We live. We die. We stand for judgment. There are... Incidentally, there's no reincarnation here. You know, some belief systems would say, well, you reincarnate and you're you're better, you're worse, you know, whatever you come. No, the Bible says that's not the way it goes. We live, you die once. And after that is appointed for the judgment. Um, life is a wonderful gift. We love life, we celebrate life here. I'm glad that we do. And um it is sometimes hard, but it is always a blessing and a gift. Um, we have a lot of new life coming to our church here today, or this week, this year, sorry. Um, I think Emmeline will be the, the first, Lord willing, and then I think we have five more that we know of right now, is that right? So a uh, exciting time um, in our church to see so many babies being born, um, but death is also a part of that. Um, you know, it's, it's a... It's a, a something that makes us sad, it's something that we grieve, um, but it's something that we, none of us can escape from. It is a part of life. Um, one of the things that makes life so precious is the fact that it doesn't last forever, that it is going to end at some point. And you know, I think the, the, the warning here is that, or the reminder here, I should say, is that we are going to die at some point, and then we're going to stand before judgment. And uh, the call here is, are we ready for that? And if you're here this morning, I don't, I don't want to be morbid. I don't typically focus on the things of death and stuff like that. But it is a reality. And the fact is, <clears throat> we've given this life and this opportunity here to make of it as we can. And this you're here this morning, you're hearing the good news of the gospel. You're hearing that we are guilty before a holy God. We need a sacrifice to pay for our sin debt. And you're hearing that Jesus paid that for you. You don't have to go into eternity owing that debt. You can believe that, you can apply that to your life today. And if you've not before, then in a moment we'll have a time of invitation for you could come and we would love to explain to you how that means to follow Jesus. But it's, it's simple, it's not hard. We just have to believe by faith what, he, what you're, he's telling us here. That he has died, he, offered, he has been offered once to bear the sins of many. If you believe that here this morning, I invite you in a moment to come and to become a follower of Jesus, to confess, I believe that, and repent of your sin. Today would be a great day to do that. First Sunday in April, 2022. Why not make it today? You can. We'll have a chance to do that. The reminder also is, though, that for us who are um, followers of him, that we need to be out busy about the kingdom and proclaiming this. <clears throat> there is no universalism taught in the Bible, the idea that everybody's ultimately going to be okay. Um, there is a judgment. And those who are not in Christ will be found wanting and will stand still owing that payment of their sin. There's no teaching here that says that everybody's going to be with hev- in heaven with God at the end. There is an alternative. There is a place of judgment. The Bible calls that hell. And uh, so we need to be proclaiming his word, proclaiming the gospel, active in the kingdom. Um, That's the whole point of our MC life and our missional outreaches is that we as a church and as our mission communities go out and proclaim this to him. It's appointed to man once to die. After that comes the judgment. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So this is uh, sort of eschatology 101. Um, I'm not a big, a big student of eschatology eschatology is the theological word for the study of the end times the things that will be at the end of time what, what does the Bible teach about it? well, a lot of people have studied a lot more than me I kind of keep it basic I like it right here, eschatology 101 Jesus is coming again he came once to be the, uh, the sacrifice for sin but he is coming again and We need to be ready. I think all the eschatological positions can agree on those two things. Jesus is coming, and we need to be ready. Now, what does that readiness look like? He will appear not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. What does that look like? You know... There was an event yesterday that took place that was really important to a lot of people, especially in the state of North Carolina. Um, anybody get the chance to watch the UNC-Duke basketball game last night? A few of you did. I want to ask who was happy and who was sad. Um, but uh, there were people who were eagerly waiting for that. What did that look like? How would you have known if they were eagerly waiting? Well, they've been talking about it for many, many days. Right? They've been telling other people about it. They've been thinking about it nonstop. Right? Why? Because they were eagerly awaiting. Man, I can't wait for Saturday night. Man, it's going to be Coach K's last game. No, it won't. It's going to be a second of the last game. Well, we know now it was his last game. You know, important game. You know, all this. They're talking about it. Some people rearrange their schedule. Some people made big sacrifices to be there. Anybody know a guy named Eric Church? Country singer, anybody know that guy? Okay, he had, a con- he had a concert planned in Texas. He planned it months ago. This, he's on his concert tour, right? Sold out, excuse me, sorry, <clears throat> sold out in the Coliseum in Texas for last night. Now, our man Eric Church, very successful country singer, born and raised in Granite Falls, North Carolina, not far from you guys. That's where he's from. And when the bracket turned out, and it turned out it was UNC Duke. He was eagerly awaiting that. How do I know? What, anybody know what he did? He canceled, he canceled the sold-out concert. This guy was eagerly awaiting this game. He sacrificed. He inconvenienced himself. He disappointed a bunch of people because of this game. He was eagerly awaiting it. It was important to him. It was all he could think about. He said, heck with you guys in your tour. I want to see the game. Now the question is, is that the attitude that we have towards the coming of Jesus? Are we eagerly awaiting it? Are we talking about it? Are we thinking about it? Are we sacrificing for it, to be ready for it? I just leave that question for you to consider this morning. Listen to these words again. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I pray we are waiting for him. And if not, let's get eager. Let's get excited about it. Let's recognize it is a big deal, way bigger than any basketball game that will be forgotten days, weeks, months, and years from now. It is a big deal. It will be the event of all humanity. It will be it. We should be eagerly looking forward to that.